Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find the show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and today we'll be discussing China, China, and more China. So to start, let's go to China. So Sam, you or actually we could go to Houston, I guess, because we were in Houston last week for a luncheon for the Acton Institute, where you were the keynote speaker and uh, gave a talk entitled China Enigma and Challenge for the World. So before we get into some of the current events part of all of this, I wonder if you could just give us a summary, the Reader's Digest version, uh, the, the TLDR version of your talk on China that you gave last week. Well, China is, of course, on everyone's minds. And I suppose there are a couple of things that I was trying to get across in my talk about this subject. And it's nothing that I haven't said before, or written before. And there's a number of articles that I've written in different publications over, the, over the, really the past three years about China. So let me say a couple of things. First of all, I think uh, the first is that what is happening in China sort of challenges a lot of the orthodoxies that emerged in the 1990s about the effects of market liberalization upon a given society. So uh, remember, Eric, there was that book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Man. <clears throat> it's a very famous book. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with it. And it basically argued that the end of history was market economies and liberal democracies, and we're all inevitably heading in that direction. It's a sort of a, a bit of a Hegelian argument, really, about sort of the dialectics of history and how things are going to go forward. And one of, um, one of the things that China has raised is that that thesis doesn't look so healthy now, right? Because we know that China, since 1979, had gradually gradually opened up parts of its economy, especially the, the external trade part, to what we would broadly call different forms of market liberalization. Now, it was always limited. It was always conditional. It was only in certain parts of the country, etc. But all those changes have, and they have, of course, taken a lot of people out of poverty, right? Lots and lots of people out of poverty in a very quick period of time. But all those changes have not produced the expected political, civil, uh, and even religious re results when it comes to the broader expansions of liberty. So the argument has always been you expand commercial liberty, other sorts of freedoms will inevitably start to flow from that. And I think China provides us with a very good example of, well, actually that turns out not to be the case, that if a regime, especially one as ruthless as the Chinese Communist Party is willing to uh, do whatever it takes to stay in power, it will do whatever it takes to stay in power. So that's the first thing. The other thing I was talking about was how China is gradually not just cracking down on political, civil, and religious liberties, but it's also cracking down on commercial freedoms now as well. The state, the Chinese Communist Party, is centralizing more and more 
economic power in its own hands. This is exhibited by things like CEOs of Chinese companies being required to put the country's national goals into their business plan, uh, party members being appointed to boards, uh, more, uh, less and less scope being given for private initiative and much more top-down control by st state authorities, etc. So China's moving in the opposite direction economically, and the, the, its paramount leader, Xi Jinping, has made that very clear that this is what he wants to do. So that was another thing I talked about, about this is a trend that's happening in China, and it raises challenges for, for us, of those who are, of us who believe in freedom, who believe in liberty and its importance and why it's so significant for human societies. It's throwing into question, I think, many of the assumptions that were operative in the 1990s, which in retrospect seem somewhat deterministic now, right? So if you just do this, then this will ine inevitably happen. The third thing, I, well, I guess the third or fourth thing I talked about was some of the weaknesses of contemporary China. Uh, some of them are obvious, right? So the demographic problem, that's a huge problem for China because it's not just that they are going to, the population is going to shrink, it means that their sources of cheap labor are going to go away. It means it's going to be lots and lots of young Chinese men who are never going to find a spouse. That's not a good recipe for any society to have a lot of angry, frustrated young men walking around. It's a good recipe for a lot of violence. Exactly. 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 And that is something to be concerned about. But the demographic change that's happening in China is going to have some big negative implications for them, especially with their economy, because it means they're going to have an aging economy. It means they're going to aging population, which means more resources spent on health care uh, and aged care and social security. So that's not one weakness. Another weakness, I think, <clears throat> they can't feed themselves. They're heavily reliant upon imports of food and energy. Uh, a, third thing, a third thing that's a big problem for them is that the more they move in this direction of re-centralizing a lot of the economy, the more that the usual inefficiencies and ineffectiveness of those sorts of things will start to manifest themselves in the society. Um, another thing, of course, is that it, China borders, I think it's 14 countries, and it has border disputes with four of them. Four of its neighbors have nuclear weapons. And, of course, it's got North Korea right next to it. So if you look at its geopolitical situation, it's not it's, – the United States would not want to be in a similar situation to have – to be bordered by lots of countries um, with which – some of which you have serious territorial disputes, four of which can nuke you if they want to, and then you've got um, – the man in, in, uh, in uh, North Korea who no one would want really someone like that next to their border. And also their behavior, the way they're acting in the international sphere is causing lots of countries to realign their alliances against China. We saw this recently with Australia, the United States and Britain coming together to form a new, basically a new military alliance that's very clearly directed against China. We've seen what's also called... Um, well, I can't think of the phrase for it now, but India, Australia, Japan, uh, the United States, they're all forming another alliance, which is clearly about uh, restricting China and sort of trying to push back against its clear aggression. So that's not healthy for a country. No country would want to be in that type of situation. So I think we've seen some major changes in expectations regarding China, 
China has some major weaknesses, which I think explains some of the aggressive behavior that we're seeing being directed outwards. But it also raises big questions for America, right? Because China is one of our top three trading partners. It's a country of 1.4 billion people, which means a market of 1.4 billion people. A lot of businesses, American businesses, are heavily involved there, but partly because of the cheap labor, but because it's a big market to whom you want to sell stuff. And this raises all sorts of difficult questions, like technology transfers. Um, okay, technology transfers are often parts of deals that companies in different parts of the world do with each other. And usually, most countries give a most companies will give a sort of a, um, a, a piece of technology that's several generations behind whatever is the most tech, most up to date technology. But given the, the fact that we know the Chinese regime is not, not just ex basically extorting some of this, these things from businesses, but also stealing stuff, we know this very clearly, they're stealing intellectual property for all around the world. You know, this raises lots of questions, lots of very thorny questions about the relationship between free trade and national security. And now national security is used by a lot of companies, both in America and elsewhere, as an excuse, right? So, well... You can't do that. You can't, you can't liberalize that market because we are so important for national security. So therefore, we deserve subsidies and tariffs and things like that. Um, but so it's abused all the time. Nonetheless, we do know that there are areas in which free trade and national security don't match up. And that means very difficult choices for countries like the United States that have up until relatively recently, been more or less committed to a type of free trade agenda. So I guess my, in my Houston talk, I wasn't trying to sort of offer any particular solutions. I was more trying to sketch the sheer complexity of it all. And that's going to present some very serious challenges for the United States as a country, for American businesses, but also for religious organizations, right? I mean, we've seen the Vatican has engaged in this deal with Beijing. We don't know what's in the deal, but I think it's fair to say that uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of questions about that deal and whether it's actually going to be essentially a replication of the Holy See's Ostpolitik, which was the policy adopted by the Holy See towards communist countries in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union during the Cold War in the 1970s, which I think in retrospect turned out to be a colossal failure. Yep. So there's a lot of very different, so, so governments have very difficult choices to make, businesses have very difficult choices to make, religious organizations have difficult choices to, to, to make, and we have some very difficult things to navigate now regarding trade policy. Yeah, back, it's back, a mess. Backing up, <laughs> as so many things seem to be, back, yes. backing up to what you were saying about the excuse that is often used about national defense, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it really, to me, highlights how, how important it is for people not to overuse that as a reasoning, because I think right. there are very compelling reasons that you could point to uh, supply chain issues with China, particularly as much tech as we procure from China that we may not be able to trust, especially as you highlighted that they are really within the business. You know, not, not a whole lot happens there without the blessing of the CCP. Absolutely. So those firms that are ritualistically stealing the data breaches that we hear about. I heard an interview with Klon Kitchen, who's at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, who made mm -hmm. the point that there was a, a change in strategy 
by the Chinese, where previously they were looking to breach, break in, and steal the most, you know, what they identified as the most important possible data that they could get access to. And the change in strategy was to say, we're just going to get whatever we can, even if we don't know what it is, even if we don't know how to use it. So for people out there who have heard stories that, you know, your FICO score, uh, credit information may have been passwords, all of that may have been stolen by entities within China and thinking, well, what could they possibly want with my FICO score? Well, the answer might seem to be that China doesn't even really know at this point. But at some point in the future, like, well, if it comes up that like, well, we could leverage people in a certain way using like what we know about their credit history. Well, we've got that data. So they're they're, they're banking as much of it as, as possible. And I think, you know, that... The, the way that we'll get to some of the business and cultural interaction stuff uh, in, in a bit, but I, I think it just to me highlights that this is a problem that we, we don't take seriously enough and we don't seem mm-hmm. to want to take seriously. And I think the best example of that in, in high pulling from the news of the week was you saw that I'm sure everyone saw the report from the Financial Times that China tested a nuclear capability capable hypersonic missile in August. Um, And for those who don't uh, follow missile technology very closely, uh, hypersonic missiles are slower than the intercontinental ballistic missiles that you would normally hear about and we heard about during the Cold War, but they are more maneuverable. Uh, so the intercontinental ballistic missiles are moving a parabolic. You know, you, you launch them, they go up, they come down. And the trajectory is predictable, but the hypersonic ones are maneuverable in a way that makes them much harder for us to detect. Uh, so they, they launch this thing into space, it circles the globe and comes hurtling back down to Earth and misses its target by about 24 miles, which mm-hmm. is not really comforting. You know, it's we, we, I think we have the risk of dismissing it in the way that we so often dismissed a lot of the tests that the North Koreans would do and say we, we see how shambolic their technology seems to be and underdeveloped as compared to ours and just kind of laugh at it and not take seriously the fact of what China is doing here. But what was what was mind boggling from this week was when asked about it at a White House press briefing, Jen Psaki, the spokesman for uh, White House press secretary, spokesman for the Biden administration, said, and I will read the entire quote so that nobody can say that this is being pulled out of context, the entire quote here. I can say and would echo what he said, which is generally speaking, we've made clear our concerns about the military capabilities that the PRC continues to pursue, and we have been consistent in our approach with China. We welcome stiff competition, but we not we do not want that competition to veer into conflict, and that is certainly what we convey privately as well. The way that they're talking about it, that we welcome competition, you know, it's in, in the economic understanding that you were talking about earlier, you can understand that. I mean, you, yes. you, we have an understanding of free trade in a way that doesn't talk about it in the populist manner that has been so vogue for the last four to five mm-hmm. years, that the trade deficit is not some kind of a loss, that you know, uh, if you can go back to Paul Krugman – before Paul Krugman became whatever Paul Krugman is now, where he made good arguments that I think are correct that 
we shouldn't think about trade with other countries in this context of competing against each other like somebody is going to be victorious. We're both Mm -hmm. benefited by that process. But talking about competition in the context of a nuclear arms race is crazy to me. And I it to me just highlights how from a government level down to a business and a cultural level, we just don't seem to take China all that seriously. And I honestly wonder why that is. Given everything that we have seen over the last number of years, what we know of the way that China is uh, has been now oppressing the people of Hong Kong, that they've the Uyghur minority population, concentration camps, given what we know and now having seen this missile test and thinking back to what you were just saying earlier about the land disputes that they have with other countries that have nuclear weapons, it should be worrying. And I'm worried that it doesn't seem more worrying to more people. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's, it's very concerning. And I think part of it, part of this can be explained by the fact that Only, let's say, five, six, seven, eight years ago, the whole relationship with China was being talked about more or less in a positive way, right? So the Clinton administration talked about it in a relatively positive way. Uh, The Bush, Bush, W. Bush administration talked about it in a relatively positive way. The Obama administration, more in a positive way, but you could see some cautions are starting to enter there. Although we have, you know, film of now President Joe Biden saying, hey, they're good people, right? <laughs> so um, we've moved from a situation where um, it was a type of cooperation plus economic competition. And you're right. One of the things about economic competition is that it does benefit everyone, especially consumers. This is the the great misnomer about free trade. People think of it as winners and losers. It's really not. It's really not. It's everyone mutually benefiting benefiting from competition over time. But we've moved from that to the realization that something has changed within China very, very quickly. So I think there's a lot of catching up to do that's going on right before our eyes in some respects. Um, I think another dimension of this is that maybe we didn't track what China was thinking about us. And most of the reading I've done in this area suggests that the 2008 financial crisis, which we all know was pretty bad in America, really the Chinese looked at that very carefully. And they were looking at this and saying, okay, there's a financial crisis which seems to have emanated from within the financial system of the United States and is having global implications major recession, the Great Recession, worse recession since the Depression, etc. And I think it's fair to say that that changed a lot of peoples in China, especially policymakers, people within the Communist Party who are not stupid, they're not stupid, changed their estimation about, first of all, China's place vis-a-vis the United States, It changed their estimation about their approach because remember it was all previously it was all about not alarming people, that China was going to become a responsible member of the global community, etc. But that has changed. It's clearly that the regime there has taken a very different stance and we are sort of still, I think part of the thing is we're still playing catch up. And I think what your point about uh, military competition, whether it's nuclear or otherwise, 
nuclear military competition is not generally something you want to happen because military competition, the, the more intense it gets, uh, you know, the more, frankly, the more likelihood that soft war turns into hard war. So I'm, I'm astounded by you. I think a lot, like you, that I think that there's a lot of Washington policymakers that are still playing catch up. They're having to, you know, it's always very hard to concede that maybe you missed something. It's very hard to concede maybe we got things wrong. Maybe we misread things. Maybe we bought too much into the end of history thesis. But I do think there are people on both sides of the aisle who are um, more than awake to this. And, you know, the, when the Trump administration issued its 2017 national security policy, it made very clear that this there was going to be a major change. And some of the things we've talked about today are some of the reasons for that change. But interestingly, there was an article in Foreign Affairs the year, uh, one year later by two people who had worked in senior foreign policy positions in the Obama administration, and they more or less said the same thing, that both Republican and Democratic administrations had made some fundamental missteps regarding China, and we're still playing catch-up in how to adjust to this. Yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm struck by what you said of the, the believing, there's a phrase for this, and I can't think of the name, uh, what what the exact phrasing is. But one of the problems that we have is um, trying to understand the motivations of an opponent like China in this circumstance, but, tr- but basically washing it through the way we would think about right, uh, rather than right. the way that they would think about it. Right. And I think we see this as well with the reactions, uh, particularly of the Biden administration with regard to Afghanistan, where they actually seem to think that, you know, Oh, they're concerned about their global standing and being a part of the global community and all of that, where, you know, (laughs) one one could at least make a plausible argument that China would have some concerns about the way that they are perceived because so much of it – they want to be perceived as certainly a regional power, perhaps mm-hmm. with an as- uh, aspirations to being a global power that could supplant the United States in a way that the Taliban in Afghanistan does not, that they want to run their country. But you can make that argument plausibly about the Chinese, but you can't make it about the Taliban. And we seem right. to have the this constant problem of washing the per, uh, what we should be, the way we should be thinking about what opponents of the United States and I think opponents of a global liberal democratic order would be through our own perspective on it rather than the way that they are thinking about it. We should be trying to think about things the way that China is thinking about them. And I think one of the you see this with Hong Kong. And I think Mm -hmm. the other lesson there with regard to uh, to Taiwan is and I I got this from another AEI fellow, Oriana Mathis. Skylar Mastro, who had said the, the biggest thing that Xi thinks about is, is his level of certainty that they can be successful at something before they do it. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this sense, they are not big risk takers. They are not going to try to take Taiwan if they don't feel that there is more or less certainty. 100% guarantee that they will be successful at it. And I think we are not taking that seriously enough that uh, you also had a story from uh, this week that uh, or from a, a week ago that a Pentagon official 
uh, resigned over his belief that China has won the AI battle and is heading towards global dominance. I, I wonder why this isn't a bigger story. And th- part of it is to say that we are so behind what they are doing in terms of artificial intelligence that his concern is, well, what is even the point at this point? We're 10 years behind. We're getting further behind as as things move along. And we just don't seem to be taking it seriously. And I, I'm, I, I wonder and I hope that it isn't the case that something significant like China taking Taiwan is going to be what is necessary for people to wake up to the actual concern that exists in China. And I want to go back to one other thing, because you'd mentioned the success of presidential administrations and the way that they've they've thought about China and how it's changed over time. With regard to the economic part of it, mm. The Obama administration, and one thing I want to give them to their credit, which was for the people who have concerns over um, the supply chain issues, China's dominance in terms of certain tech, um, the trade that a lot of other countries are doing with it, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I think you and I as as free traders, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, uh, you know, my ideal free trade agreement would be uh, something there passed by Congress. There shall be free trade between said, two countries. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, rather than these complex negotiated, right. Uh, right. you know, or ideas like TPP. 2,000-page documents. Exactly, which, you know, again, right. I, I think we can academically argue and be correct about. Do not represent true free trade. Correct. But... The question always is, coming back to the economist's perspective, compared to what? Compared to the status quo, was TPP better? And I'm, I'm sorry, TPP was better to me than the status quo because one of the misunderstandings we had about the Trans-Pacific Partnership is that it wasn't a benefit to China. It was an attempt to actually try to balance some of that out vis-a-vis China. And Mm -hmm. killing it in the way that it was killed was a benefit to China, not a strike against it. And we we are just confused about all of this stuff, and I don't see it getting clearer anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. I think you're right, Eric, because, I mean, what you're pointing to is something that – those of us who believe in markets, those of us who are free traders, we have to get a lot better at explaining the economics of something like free trade. It's astounding when you talk to people, all sorts of people, uh, the misconceptions that people have of what it actually means. And you know, and to understand that when we talk about free trade, <laughs> that's not quite the same thing as all these different trade deals. Because most of these trade deals are some sort of balancing out of liberalization, some level, but also some protectionism on another. And you hope you you basically end up thinking, okay, on balance, to use a Bill Clinton phrase, on balance, <laughs> what is the best situation here? And that's how free that's how trade agreements go. And so there's there's some very serious assessments of what on balance is is most likely to work. And I think, like you, I agree, TPP was on balance, on balance better than the alternative. But let me just say something also. I think you raised a really important point about trying the mistake of thinking about China or why China is doing what it's doing from the standpoint of an American or a Westerner or a European. And I think there's a couple of things that are worth highlighting here to, to try and explain why China is doing what it's doing. One of the things you find whenever you talk about this issue of China and why they're behaving in the way that they are is that it's partly about what's called the 100 years 
of humiliation that China endured roughly between the 1840s and 1949. And during that period of time, China, which had been one of the great world's great civilizations, basically became the plaything, right, of Western powers. Um, it wasn't just the British in Hong Kong, right? It was the Portuguese in Macau. There were Japanese outposts. There were German outposts. There were Italian outposts. There were Russian outposts. Japanese at different points controlled huge swathes of territory within China. And China appeared weak. It appeared pathetic. It appeared to be a, a nation, a society, a civilization that was finished. And it's very important, I think, to keep in mind that for for people in China, regardless of whether they're members of the Communist Party or not, that 100 years of humiliation that they talk about is something they want to exercise from history, from their society, from their culture. And Xi talks about this all the time. When he became um, paramount leader, as they call him, in, in at the end of 2012, early 2013, he mentioned this, and in speech after speech, he raises this all the time. So it's a way of pointing back and saying, that was our past. This was a terrible thing that happened to us. We are never going to let that happen again. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that for many people in China, again, regardless of whether they're members of the Communist Party or not, the natural state of affairs is for China to be the dominant regional power, if not a global power. That is the, if you look at the 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, that has been the norm for them. That has been the norm. And the last 150 years has been a break from that norm. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind, that many people in China, again, regardless of whether they're members of the party or not, see what is happening in China now and the way that China is acting as a sort of reassertion of the natural state of affairs. Now, I'm not saying that these things are good or these things are bad. I'm not saying that these trends are to be welcomed or to be regretted or whatever it happens to be. I think that history is done. History is very, you can't go back and undo the mistakes of the past. You can only go forward. But it's very important to keep those two things in mind. I think, when we're trying to understand why China is doing what it's doing. And it speaks to your point about the importance of trying to get inside the way that they view the world. I think it's, very, it's a really interesting exercise. If you take a map of the world and you sort of put your country in the middle of the world and then you look around and what it looks like to someone else looking out, it really does change your perspective. So if you're in China, you look north, well, there's Russia and Putin and they have their own problems. Oh, there's North Korea. Hmm. Well, they're the wild card. Oh, look, there's Japan. Well, we've had a bit of a history with Japan. Japan also has a very powerful military, an aging population, but a powerful military and a big, still a significant economy. There's India, lots and lots of people, and an economy that's growing and flourishing with a very big middle class. There's Vietnam. Hey, we fought a war with them in 1979, and they, they beat us. So when you start to look at things that way, you start to think, okay, now I'm starting to understand why China is acting and thinking the way it is. Again, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's good. In fact, I have a lot of critiques of it. But when you start to put yourself in their shoes, 
I think that's a much better way of trying to understand what they're doing because then you're in a better position to react to the realities that are actually in front of us instead of just imposing our view, imposing a sort of Western-centric view that, okay, let's just have them economically liberalize and everything will be fine. Turns out it's a lot more complicated. If you zoom out, I mean, one of the other one of the other things to be concerned about is China essentially minting and exporting its governmental model to other mm-hmm. places around the mm-hmm. world because they were able to solve not entirely. And I think we should add some some notes of caution here that what we know about the Chinese economy should be taken, I mean, not even with a grain of salt, but with like an entire box worth of salt, because to some extent, we're relying on China's own self-reporting of its Mm -hmm. economic information. We know from a lot of other areas that it's not like we can fully trust what they tell us. Um, (laughs) But I mean, we do, there there are things that we do know that the the growth in the Chinese middle class has been enormous, that they have gotten much wealthier over time. And in a way that um, it coincides, incidentally, with – and th- this is one of the things that uh, I-, I also wish that a lot of people would just stop doing because I think it was – I-, I-, I believe it was Mike Pompeo, um, but it may have been somebody else. So if it's not Pompeo, I apologize. But somebody else from from uh, an interview I heard earlier this week who talks about you know like the, the Marxist-Leninist ideology of the Chinese, that's just not true anymore. I mean they have – they've dropped a lot of I – mean, they're like uh, to adapt Republican in name only. They're communist in name only in some senses now. That they're not adherents to a you know Marxist doctrine. They were willing to liberalize markets. They were willing to get much wealthier. But they have remained as authoritarian and autocratic as they could possibly be. And the concern that we should have is that there are probably a whole heck of a lot of uh, authoritarian regimes, wannabe dictators out there. That China would be more than happy to say, you know, basically package up and put in a box. Here's the technology, right? Here is the tech that we are using, which is why you get the social credit score system to keep them all their own people in line. You know, one of the biggest fears that most of those authoritarian regimes have is of their own people. Um, yes. So here are the technologically packaged up systems to help keep everyone in line. Here's the playbook for how you liberalize markets to the extent that you can get wealthy enough that you can run the country that you want to not run into the problems, the economic problems that the Soviet Union ran into. Um And here's how you maintain that kind of control. So you're marrying the wealth that is thrown off by market systems with the stability that comes from authoritarian systems. And it it strikes me and worries me that there are a lot of countries around the world right now that would look at that and go, yeah, I think they're really on to something. And so the rather than being at the end of history in the Fukuyama sense of it, we're charting off a course into a new future where the kind of you know combination of markets and authoritarianism is what is growing around the world rather than seeing kind of a Pax Americana growth of markets and liberty and democracy and capitalism that I think we had all had so much hope for 
you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, would, where those hopes seem to be fading now? Yeah, there's a, let me respond to a number of things that you said there. First of all, I think uh, your point about what's really going on in China. I find it interesting that China's, nation, China's equivalent of the National Bureau of Statistics is getting making it harder and harder for outsiders to actually find out what's going on in terms of basic raw num- numbers about growth, whether it's population or the economy. But, the, but I think we have good reasons to be distrustful of many of the things that they say are happening in their economy, in their society, because they have no reason to tell us the truth about these sorts of things. You know, they're still lying to their own population about the coronavirus, right? So to the extent that they're willing to lie to their own population, uh, we should assume as, that... As well as the rest of the world. Right. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> right. They've, they've been lying to the right. rest of the world throughout the, really, the entirety of right. this entire pandemic. And you know, we should have, the first clue really should have been when in, um, you know, in, in Wuhan, they were welding people's doors shut to keep them inside. Right. I mean, that should have been right. the first clue. Right. So, the, so we have good reasons to ask questions about that. Now, the good news, I guess, from one perspective is that that also probably means that people inside the Communist Party are all lying to each other about all sorts of things. This is a very similar phenomenon that happened in the Soviet Union, right? Because the way that you dealt with bad productivity numbers, well, you just lied about them to your boss. So the feedback mechanisms, the more that this type of approach prevails within China, the feedback mechanisms that any government needs and correction mechanisms that any government needs will start to break down. The second thing is um, the export of the Chinese political model, model of political economy, which is a sort of mixture of political authoritarianism with some degree of market liberalization. Again, it's not, it's not market liberalization as you or I would understand it. It's limited. It's, it's confined to certain areas. But it also goes along with what's called China's brick and road initiative, which is this infrastructure investment that the Chinese government has been doing in different parts of the world for quite some time now. And they dress it up in the language of international humanitarianism, etc. But really it's about China investing in different parts of the world where it believes it has strategic interests. So uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, parts of particular parts of Latin America, etc. The good news is it turns out that the Chinese are really lousy at the whole business of colonialization. They're really bad at doing it. Uh, they're clumsy. The language difficulty is an enormous one. And there's also a fair amount of evidence that host countries that have gone down this path uh, end up turning against it. So in countries like um, Myanmar, Malaysia, countries in Africa, there's there's even been sort of anti-Chinese riots because there's such resentment against this. And another point about this is that the Brick and Road Initiative turns out to have been a big drain on the Chinese economy, which they really can't afford. So, I mean, in one sense, that's good news for us in the sense that it's going to cause, these things are going to cause them enormous internal difficulties and it's going to increase corruption, it's going to increase cronyism, which no one would, should want for themselves. But I think that the risk is it makes the regime more autocratic and more willing to you to sort of do what any most regimes do when they're in, turn, in in trouble internally. What do they do? They start pointing outwards. They start trying to focus the population's attention outwards. So that's something to be concerned about. In terms of the Marxism um, Leninism thing, 
I think it's true to say that in terms of the way that it functioned under, say, Mao in the 1960s and 1970s, clearly it doesn't function that way. Now, what it does do, though, is it provides a type of legitimation process for people within the party. So I'm not saying that they believe necessarily a lot of this stuff. What I am saying is it still provides a way for the regime to rationalize, to explain to people what they're doing, and also as a way of sort of keeping people within the party, within the high ranks of the party under control. Because the moment you can say, okay, you're no longer adhering to Marxist, Leninist, Maoist positions, you're out. It's a very useful tool to have if you're trying to move against opponents within the regime, within your own regime. So I think you're right in terms of um, them taking it seriously as a sort of way of thinking about the world. I think there's grave doubts as to whether that's the case anymore. But it still provides a way of identifying dissenters within the party and dissenters in wider Chinese society that gives you a basis for acting against them. I thought the last thing I'd quickly add is that we need to keep in mind that this is a society that has had 5,000 years of top-down, centralized, heavily bureaucratic rule. It's a political culture that has had very little experience with what we would call liberal democracy, maybe for a couple of years in the 1910s, but otherwise its experience both in the pre-communist period and in the communist period is top-down, centralized control. And that's another thing I think we need to be reflecting upon, that we can't assume that the way that political issues are dealt with in, say, the United States or Western countries is the same that they're dealt with in a very, very different civilizational culture and political order like contemporary China. Yeah, I take your point about the Marxist-Leninism being a tool within its own internal system that helps it maintain a sense of control, particularly over the party bureaucracy and, and all of that. It's, I it's think, a great basis to purge people on, right? Well, you right, yeah. Say, well, it, it, right? It, it, well, uh, but I think, Mao said this, so therefore you're out. Well, I think, well, I think <laughs> where we can see on the outside the difference is in the nature of the people who spy for China – Versus the kind of people who spied for the Soviet Union, where people who spied for the Soviet Union, you had people who were really caught up in the vision, the ideology, the idea of what the Soviet Union and international communism, you know, either was or what they thought it could be and well, mostly what they thought and projected that it could be that we all know it could never be. But when you see it's you know, we have certainly had spies for China. And I think without fail, when you look closely at them, they're doing it for money. They're not doing it for ideology. They're not doing it for some belief in true – like. I, I think really true belief in the Chinese system. And again, I'm talking you know, not about the people that would be sent over by China, people mm -hmm. who would be Americans in the way that Americans during the Cold War would become spies for the Soviets. The people who are Americans who are choosing to do it – are largely for some kind of financial advantage. And I think that speaks to just the way that there isn't that coherent ideological vision or at least not the kind of one that was compelling to people about the Soviet Union. Foolishly compelling, but nonetheless compelling. Um, I, one of the other points that you made reminded me of, and this is where I think we could briefly talk about a, culture, a couple of points on culture, our culture vis-a-vis -vis China before we wrap it up here, and that is uh, – 
uh, you reminded me the the inability to be honest with themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Just reminded me. This is a problem you, in the Soviet Union, right? Well, it, it reminded me of the great miniseries Chernobyl, where yes. Yes. one of the biggest problems that you see in there is the inability for anyone to tell the truth to themselves and to the mm-hmm. people who need to hear it. So you take what was clearly a disaster. And you make it an even bigger disaster by the inability to say, well, this is the actual nature of it. Like, you know, what's the, the, the saying from the guy who was running Chernobyl that it's like, you know, I can't remember the number, but it's like, you know, 12 Rundgren or whatever, you know, not, you know, not bad or not good, not terrible. It was like, no, it was actually quite catastrophic. And right. there was an inability to be honest about it because you were constantly covering up for yourself and covering up for what would be embarrassing to the regime. So I, 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 I think we as maybe as down as we've seen, uh, seemed through this entire conversation, there are a lot of internal problems that the Chinese have. And there is no, you know, to get back to your point about determinism, there is no determined outcome here. There is nothing to say that the China, which seems to be on this upward trajectory in the United States, which seems to be in some kind of a decline, that these are the trajectories that we're now on to, you know, towards uh, kind of a dialectical understanding of mm-hmm. of capital H history in the way that um, uh, Marxist thinkers would talk about it. Or, it's or no- the way that people like Fukuyama talked about it, right? True. I mean, because if you read Fukuyama's book, very Hegelian, di- literally dialectics of history. And there's a fair, I mean, frankly, there's a fair amount of Marxist Marxist analytical framework that's at work in that book. It just you just end up rather than with communism, you end up with liberal democracy and markets. But let me say another thing, which I um, which we've talked a bit about culture, we've talked about civilization, and we we tend to see this conflict at the moment, this sort of half declared conflict, this half declared. Cold War-ish situation between China and us and China and lots of the rest of the world. We talk about it in terms of economics. We talk about it in terms of defense. We talk about it in terms of even things like missile development, etc. But it's also a question, it's also a competition of values, right? So the United States, for all its problems, and we know all its problems, is a country that is built upon a particular experiment in ordered liberty, a certain faith in freedom, a certain faith in certain norms and virtues that have that have come to us, that have been bequeathed to us from the past, that have uh, achieved modern expression, but are deeply rooted in the civilization of the West. We have a particular value system in, built into that's reflected in our political system, that's reflected in our economic system. I guess I'm talking in ideal types, but nonetheless, I still think things, those things are there. And China is presenting, at some level, a very different value system, one in which the individual is not so important, one in which things are subordinated to the advancement of the state and the nation, one in which uh, things like truth are not considered so important if lying is considered a way to get ahead. So to the extent that this conflict, this sort of half-declared cold, new Cold War, if that's what it is, and I'm not sure it is, to the extent that it's a type of competition, it's very important, I think, for those of us who believe in the American experiment, rooted in this deeper civilizational um, ground, that we understand it in this particular way, which means that we need to be much more self-confident 
about what America stands for, about the American experiment in ordered liberty. Because I'll never forget, do you remember when Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had that famous meeting earlier this year with senior Chinese officials? It was really the big first discussion that had happened between the Biden administration and uh, um, senior Chinese officials, right? And you remember they, they sit down for their usual 10 minutes of which is sort of nothing talk, what's expected to be nothing talk while the cameras are on. And then the serious stuff starts when the cameras are turned off. But what happened? Well, what happened was the Chinese officials started laying into Blinken, basically, and spouting what is very recognizable Black Lives Matter's language and concepts and arguments and thrusting them in his face. And it was extraordinary to watch Secretary Blinken. He didn't know what to say. Because if you've just spent a whole year in which trashing the country, claiming that the United States is inherently racist, that the founding is nothing more than a bunch of white racist men building a society and economy that just suits them, you shouldn't be surprised that people who who are in global competition with the United States throw that back in your face. And if you don't have a strong sense of, well, no, that's not what America is, this is what America is, if you're unable to articulate confidently the values and the, the commitments, the moral commitments that are built into the American experiment, if we can't do that, we lose. If we can't allow ourselves to not be lectured to by people who are putting a religious minority into concentration camps genocide. Then the, the, and, and committing genocide against them, then, then that is a moral failure on our part. And I think you are Correct. absolutely right that this is where the concern for um, the threat of what you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, uh, wokeness is probably the most applicable term that I can think of, although there's probably problems with it. But let's just call it that for the sake of clarity, that this idea that we are now teaching people that, you know, the – and again, you can bifurcate these conversations, right? You know, right. what a representative, the Secretary of State of the United States should say in response to the Chinese when they throw something like that in our face is one thing. And in a sense, it can be a little bit propagandistic, which is to say that the kind of internal conversation that we would have about the history and legacy of slavery and racism within the United States in a purely American context of that conversation – we should absolutely acknowledge the failures of this country, of the original sin of slavery and racism that we live with. But to do so in acknowledgement that what makes slavery in America unique is not the fact that we had it. I mean, you know, the, for for all the uh, ridiculous statements about the origins of slavery, some people seem to have forgotten how the pyramids got built, um, or right. you know, even what uh, you know the right. the Israel the Jews were doing in uh, in, in Egypt um, uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. It's not the fact that we had it. Plenty of places have had it. It's the fact that we fought a war to get rid of it. And we don't talk about it within those terms enough in an American context. And we don't have American officials, sadly, who are willing to stand up and say, you know, you know, no, while well, you could even, I think, acknowledge that no country is perfect. And I don't even know you need to do that within that context. Um, we can acknowledge that no country is perfect, but to say that the American way of approaching life of approaching ordered liberty, as you were talking about, is better. It is not the kind of system right. that is putting people into concentration camps and committing genocide and doing the kind of things like the Chinese are doing. And it's worrisome to see 
that we don't have that kind of confidence in ourselves to be able to say, yes, of course we're better than the Chinese. Yes, of course our way of doing things is better than the Chinese way right. of doing things. And, and sadly, it's been a long run thing to maybe tie a bow on this. The economic liberalization that you saw for so many years, you know, um, happening in China. And it was just it, it was amazing how you got this from certain commentators within the United States that after China literally kills tens of millions of people over the course of decades trying to get their perfect system, they finally resign themselves to reluctantly embrace some form of market liberalization. And nonetheless, you have some commentators in this country who look at the progress China makes after they make that decision and go, by God, it must be the totalitarianism. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this, this is exactly right. And until, I guess, I guess we could put it this way. If we're going to deal with the challenge of China, whether it's economically, politically, militarily, whatever, the sine qua non of that, of that is that we have to get our own house in order, right? So that means being very clear about why it is we engage in things like free trade, why we think free trade is important, distinguishing free trade from genuine national security concerns. Now, you know, that's a difficult thing because there are people, cronies who play that card all the time to try and get favors. But nonetheless, it's very clear. Adam Smith himself said, you know, defense trumps opulence. So there are some very serious discussions we need to have about how we cordon these things off properly from each other. But in the end, if we don't believe in the United States, if, for all its faults, if we don't believe that America does present this particular vision of what a society that takes ordered liberty seriously can look like and aspire to, if we don't fix that, if we don't have that self-confidence, it's very hard to see how we can compete in the long term. Because societies, I often say, they don't die so much from external pressures. That can matter, but they die when they lose belief in themselves. I'm reminded and... and We'll, we'll wrap it up here, but I am uh, reminded of the great speech to the Manhattan Institute from Charles Krauthammer, decline is a choice. Right. Decline is a choice. Right. And we don't right. and have you know, to choose decline. Yeah. And, you know, there's, 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 there's factors that are harder to deal with than others. Um, there's challenges that, you know, for example, if we're going to get our economy in order, there's some major things that have to happen, whether and it's regarding some very difficult topics like social security spending, the welfare state. Some of these things are very, very hard. But to not deal with those issues is a choice. Decline is a choice. The opposite of decline, which is flourishing, is also a choice. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search for Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, of course, so that more people can find this program. Thank you to Sam for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>